0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for for the gift that you uh, give us. the generosity that you extend by um, bringing us together um, as a church, and the privilege that we have to open your word, and to uh, study, and uh, to come before you, um, and Lord, as we, as we dive into uh, Luke 22, and as we, as we examine um, just the way that you experience what it means to be betrayed, how you responded, how your disciples responded, how you addressed the root of betrayal um, with Judas in the garden. Um, God, I pray that you would um, open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. Um, Lord, I just I confess and admit that um, studying this passage was, was hard for me this week. Um, kind of like scratching open old wounds, maybe. Um, So God, I pray that you would help us to endure that and to be encouraged in the midst of that, to be challenged at the same time um, where we we need to hear a word from you, to speak into some of those places of our hearts and our lives that have been wounded, that have been broken. Um, So God, I pray that you would do that for us. And I pray, God, that you would just give us a fresh revelation of who you are for us. In Jesus' name. Everybody said. Amen, amen. Luke chapter twenty-two, verses forty-seven through fifty-three. Luke twenty-two, forty-seven through fifty-three. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. I'm going to stop. Andrew, can you uh, get my mic fixed, or should I turn it off? I just back up and hold it. It's kind of where I preach from, so how do I do that? back the pulpit up itself? Is that better? Let's start again. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who would come out against him, Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so what's happening in this passage is uh, Luke is telling us a story, right? A story about how Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And not just a story about how he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, but he also gives us some insight into... Um, how the disciples that followed Jesus responded to this betrayal. And we also see in contrast to that um, how Jesus responds to that betrayal. And then we also see Jesus is kind of confronting the root of the issue. So the first thing we'll kind of take a look at is, is this betrayal from a friend. Think about that for a minute. That's kind of the reality that this passage confronts for us or addresses for us. Brings to the forefront, right? The pain that we experience when uh, we face betrayal. The reality about betrayal is it never, it never comes at the hands of someone who doesn't matter to you. You're never betrayed by somebody who doesn't matter to you. The pain of betrayal always comes from the hand of someone who does matter. We're not, we're not betrayed by faceless people. Every one of us can look into our minds and see the faces of people who have betrayed us and the pain that we've felt from that. We're not betrayed by people that we aren't emotionally attached to somehow. We're not betrayed by people that we're not emotionally connected to somehow. We're not betrayed by people that we don't trust. You think about that. If you didn't trust someone to begin with, you would never face the pain of betrayal. We're not betrayed by people that we don't love somehow. If you never loved, you would never feel the pain of betrayal. It's the reality. If you never entered into that, betrayal wouldn't happen to you. There'd be somebody close to you. Somebody you loved dearly. Somebody you invested in. Somebody that you should have been safe with. Right? It should be a place of safety in relationships. And when that safety is broken, it it's betrayal that is happening. It's somebody you shared your life with. Somebody that should have been a part of the nurturing uh, circle of relationships. Uh, that you have. That's, That's the truth of this passage is that the pain of betrayal that comes our way, that we experience, doesn't come at the hands of people that we didn't once trust with our very lives somehow. Jesus in this passage is betrayed by a close friend, not somebody who is faceless, so to speak. Luke tells us that while Jesus was still speaking, While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man named Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's an interesting portion of our text. If you remember um, the last time we were in the Gospel of Luke just a couple of weeks ago, um, Jesus has now moved to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And he has encouraged his disciples twice to pray. Pray that you are not overcome by temptation. Don't fall asleep, but stay awake and pray. And what do the disciples do? They fall asleep instead of praying. The second time, Jesus comes back and he's like, hey, wake up. Wake up and get into the presence of your Father. While he's saying that, as he is speaking is when Judas and his crowd of murderous people began to enter the garden. As Jesus is saying, hey, wake up and start praying. Wake up and get into the presence of your Father. Wake up and rely on Him. Who can sustain you? It's in the midst of that. It's right after Jesus has spent time praying himself to the Father. You might remember that Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw away from his disciples, knelt down and prayed to the extent that he sweat blood. Jesus knew what was coming down the pike. He knew that uh, the, the crucifixion was about to happen. And his simple prayer was, God, Father, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, right? When we see Jesus in the garden knowing that this pain, this hurt is coming his way. And he still teaches his disciples to, to get into the Lord's presence. He's warned them already at the table prior to this. At the Lord's Supper, he's warned them that somebody was going to betray them. He's warned them that Peter would deny him three times. So he's given plenty of warnings and plenty of instruction and plenty of teaching. In the midst of all that, while he was speaking, there comes a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve. One of the twelve. This is the betrayal of a close friend. Somebody who was a family member. Somebody that was close to Jesus, somebody that walked in close proximity and relationship with him day by day, night by night, ate from the same table with from him. Went to the same parties as he went to. Was close to him. They were close friends. Judas is somebody that should have been safe. He should, have been, he should have been part of that circle of life-giving relationships for Jesus. And the reality about betrayal that I think we see in this text too is that betrayal never happens in a box or in a vacuum, right? It doesn't just happen um, in some secluded little place from one person. As you look back into your filing cabinet in your mind, in your heart, I am certain, almost certain, that Every one of us in this room can look back in our life experience and see not one, but two, but maybe three, but maybe four. Multiple people that have betrayed you. Multiple people that have turned on you. Multiple people that have stabbed you in the back. Multiple people that have not followed through. Multiple people that have hurt you, wounded you. When we we experience the pain of betrayal, it's not just at the hands of one person. At times, it's person after person after person for us. The pain of betrayal doesn't have one singular face, necessarily. And I think one one of the temptations that all of us can struggle with in the midst of facing this, in the midst of thinking about this, in the midst of being confronted with this, pain of betrayal right one of the temptations for every one of us is, is to think that somehow um, somehow God somehow God was absent in the midst of that pain like when you were betrayed when you were wounded by that person it's easy to believe deep down inside that somehow God was absent he wasn't there he was gone he, he was out of the house he was at the store maybe who knows Right? It's easy to believe that, man, how could God be there and let this horrible thing happen? I think if we're really honest, we don't just struggle with the temptation to, um, to believe that God is somehow absent. I think that we maybe struggle sometimes believing deep down inside, if you're really honest... And I think if you let the Holy Spirit examine you, you might find that deep down inside that you actually struggle with believing that maybe God authored that pain, right? It's not just that God was gone and an absentee father who didn't pay you attention and protect you from harm. It might be that you believe deep down inside that God was actually the dad who wounded you this way, who hurt you this way. He authored it. He caused it. Which, if you follow that bunny trail completely, then you believe that God is actually the one who betrayed you to begin with. I find this principle to be true um, as I examine human experience. Um, And I think theologically it makes a lot of sense too because what is it that we struggle with the most? Isn't it that we struggle to believe that God is who he says he is? Isn't it that we struggle with believing that God really is a good God? Isn't it that we actually struggle to believe that God is really there? Isn't that what the enemy is trying to cause us to believe, right? Father's not there. He's not really a good father. And in fact, he's an abusive father. There's better fruit for you to eat than what God has offered you. Isn't this kind of the story from the beginning all the way through? <clears throat> I think sometimes that it's tempting to believe um, when pain and suffering, when the pain and the suffering of betrayal like enters into the doorway of your soul, when that pain and that suffering walks into the doorway of your soul, when you it's not just when it walks in there the first time, it's when you go to open that doorway of your soul that's been closed for a long time um, when you get there and you begin to open that door and you begin to go into that room of pain from betrayal from being wounded from being hurt when you begin to go and sit in that room for a minute and really examine what's been going on deep down inside of you when you give that a moment when when the holy spirit leads you there I think these are the things that begin to rise to the surface. That really what I question is God's goodness, His faithfulness, His love, His presence, His power, right? Someone hurt me. Someone betrayed me in hideous ways, horrifying ways, horrible ways. And so now I question, not just that I question I believe. And my struggle is believing something about God that is not true. Maybe sometimes you begin to think that maybe God has somehow lost control. Some people, when they look at this story of the garden and what's taking place, they believe that somehow Jesus was way out of control. Like, man, he thought he had this together. He thought he had this together. He called these 12 dudes to come and follow him. Suddenly, at the end, it all starts to come unraveled. It all starts to fall apart. And one of the major ways that it begins to fall apart is one of these guys actually betrays him. I think the reality about this passage is Jesus is more in control here. Um, And not that I think he could be more in control. Let me figure out a a better way to say that. I think the evidence of him being in control here is more obvious than anywhere else. Why would I say that? Think about that. I think the evidence that that Jesus is more in control in these moments is more obvious than other places in Scripture. Maybe another place where you might find this to be more obvious would be at the cross. Is this too heady for you guys? Are you tracking? Okay, Okay, I'm going to talk to two of you then. Um, (laughs) Okay. The evidence that God is in control. You think about this, the pain that you face in your life, betrayal. I know you guys have stories, most of you in this room. I know the hurt and the pain and and the difficult roads that a lot of you have attempted to walk down and walk through, right? In those moments when you begin to believe that God has betrayed you, what you're thinking is God's lost control. He cannot be a good God and be in control when that horrible thing happened. And when you look at this passage and you see Jesus, if you believe he is God, what could he have done in these moments when these guys were coming to arrest him and betray him? Right? Not Jesus like Superman gets up in the air and flies down. No. Raining fire down from heaven, maybe. Calling legions of angels to come and rescue him from this pain. This is what he could have done, but chose not to. Right? His response is different than that. And I think it, it proves. It proves his sovereignty, his being in control. There is a purpose to what is happening in this passage. You think about the innocence of Jesus. Every one of us in this room has faced betrayal at some level or another, right? Not one of us in this room is an innocent person. Were you innocent maybe in the moment when you were being betrayed? Maybe an argument could be made for that. I don't know your story. I don't know where you were when this happened, I don't know who it was, but I do know this. You may have been innocent in those moments, but you and I are not totally innocent. We are broken people, right? That doesn't mean that the pain and the suffering that we face in this life and the hurt from betrayal, it does not mean um, that there's some sort of like a pat answer that just dissolves the hurt from that. Right? It doesn't make that okay. Just simply making the point that there is only one person in the entire world, in all of existence, who was completely perfect, completely innocent. So the horror of this betrayal against a completely innocent person far supersedes the pain that I've experienced in my life. That, that's an interesting one to chomp on for a while. When you think about the pain of betrayal. Let me think about these questions. Like what are you tempted to believe about God? What are you tempted to believe about God as you think about betrayal? Are you tempted to believe that He isn't trustworthy? It's not powerful enough? It's absent, wasn't there? And the pain of betrayal, remember this: the pain of betrayal from a friend is simply painful because that friend actually has a face, somebody that you know, somebody you loved. The second thing that we see in our text is the response to betrayal, right? The response to betrayal. Think about, think about your knee-jerk reaction when it comes to being betrayed, when someone has betrayed you, when someone has turned their back on you, when someone has stabbed you in the back, when somebody has turned their heel against you. Your knee-jerk response. So we experience the pain of betrayal, most of us, I think most of us automatically shift into one of two positions. You're either going to shift into a defensive posture, right? Your hands up, you're ready to block what's coming next. You're living anxiously wondering what's going to happen next. This wounded me, this hurt. I got to protect, right? Protect myself from the hurt and the pain and the wounds. That's one side, and I think the other side that we uh, often kick into is aggress, aggress mode, aggressive mode. We fight, we punch, we kick. We try to keep whoever it is that has wounded us at arm's length, either, either by defending or by aggressing. These are the two ends of the pendulum swing for us we either seek to defend ourselves from further pain right or we retaliate aggressively we protect and attack and then what happens is we become victims who abuse others does that make sense? it's a vicious cycle that all of us get stuck in there's an old saying that goes this way it says a hurting people hurt people hurting people hurt people Our response to the pain and the suffering of betrayal is is kind of like an indicator on the dashboard of a car, right? Think about the indicator lights on the dashboards of cars. You have temperature gauge, you have fuel gauge, you have speedometers, you have tachometers. If you're missing half of what I'm saying, talk to Andrew afterwards because he's a mechanic. All those gauges in the dashboard of your car are there for a purpose, right? They're, they are to indicate to you and show you what the health level is of, of your car. How hot is it getting? How cold is it running? How fast is it driving? How slow is it driving? Right? Right? I think our response to pain and suffering is, is like those... Indicators in our dashboards <coughs> Tells us how, how well our soul is running Tells us how well our heart is doing Tells us how healthy we are So I think that when, we're, when you're living in fear Or when you're living in woundedness Or when you're living in shame or when you're living in uh, guilt, then your your dashboard, the gauges in your dashboard, can read either quick to be defensive, or really quick to be aggressive, quick to attack. What's your normal mode for you? What's your normal mode when it comes to the health of your soul and responding to? Suffering, hurt, pain, betrayal, what's your normal mode? Kick back and defend or jump ahead and attack? Because Both of those will indicate how you're living in regards to the fear and the shame and the guilt and the pain and the woundedness deep down inside of you that have not been healed well. On the opposite, I think this I think that when we're living in peace and contentment and wholeness and freedom, then then the reality is your dashboard gauges will read this quick to love, quick to forgive, quick to listen, right? Quick to extend a mercy. quick to extend healing to enemies, especially when they wound you. Then this is the contrast that is revealed in this passage. As you look at it, look back at verses 49 through 51. Luke tells us, when those who were around him, meaning Jesus, right? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Right? Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. That would be the emotion in the passage. Here, here's the easy thing to do when you're reading this passage. Let me read it to you this way. When those who were around him, meaning Jesus, saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest. you follow me? No emotion in the passage. As you interpret passages as you read them it's helpful helpful to read them with the actual emotion that was taking place there i get the picture of a father a loving father in the middle of a room no more stop right this is what jesus is doing no more of this and he touched his ear and healed him so the disciples in this passage uh, they respond to judas's betrayal by defending and attacking. But Jesus responds to Judas's betrayal by reaching out his hand, extending his hand in love and healing. Listen to me. The core of the message of the gospel is to reach out sacrificially in love, giving of yourself completely To the point of death Jesus did not defend himself here did not why highest purpose because he's wanting to go to the cross and give himself as a ransom a payment for our sin so that we could as his enemies become children of God right this is what Jesus does and what happens when, when we come and approach Jesus, we get to follow him, and we, we get it all wrong. We, we misunderstand. And the reason is because our knee-jerk reaction, our knee-jerk response, right? Our in-the-moment response to all of life is, is broken. The knee-jerk response and the disciples in this passage was to cause hurt and pain. They were hurting. Hurting people hurt people. Now they didn't even wait for Jesus to answer the question. Did they? They already had their minds made up what they wanted to do and what they were going to do. Ever have somebody come and like it's almost like verbal processing, right? Hey, I wonder if we should go to McDonald's. Yeah, let's go to McDonald's. And we're gone. It's like, whoa, I don't want to go to McDonald's. Right? It's like this verbal processing thing that takes place where you find out that the person that asked you the stinking question to begin with wasn't really concerned about your answer. They were just concerned about getting it off their chest. Right? That's what's taking place here in this moment. When the disciples asked the question, they weren't interested in the answer. They just barreled on ahead, as usual. Followed their natural impulse, their natural knee-jerk reaction to defend and attack. And really, just a short reference to the other Gospels, right? We're in Luke. You look at Matthew and Mark, the other synoptics. Matthew, Mark, Luke. um, Side note, Matthew, Mark, Luke. um, Match up. Real similar. Stories, very similar. So many similar stories. That's why they call them synoptics. They're synonymous. They are parallel. Gospel of John, there are some similarities. Uh, Really, the Gospel of John adds more to the picture that you get from Matthew, Mark, Luke. All that to simply say that if you go and you search out Matthew and Mark on this story, and you can search out John as well, uh, you get more to the picture. The picture expands. It gets... And bigger, and just a short reference to those other gospels informs us that it is none other than Peter. Good old Pete, right? Good old Pete, man. I love this guy. He's bullheaded. He's stubborn. He's a freaking loudmouth, right? He makes his decisions. He runs with it. He just does what he wants, and he tries to justify it later. This is Peter. Peter is the one who lashes out violently against Jesus' enemies. And really there would be so many great ways, if you you study this well, there would be so many great ways for Peter to justify his knee-jerk response. Peter could say this. He could say that Jesus had warned them. Jesus, dude, you warned us about what was coming, right? Just a little bit ago. Up there, we were eating dinner. Remember, you told the crazy story about getting washed in blood and all this other crazy. You washed our feet and everything, and then, and then you told us, go buy a couple swords, sell our cloaks. Get armed to the teeth for combat. Get ready for how hard this is going to be, right? Jesus, you told us. You instructed us. We were just being obedient to your word. See how easy it is to get Christian language all wrapped up around our misunderstanding of the gospel itself and why Jesus came and what he teaches and what he modeled and what he lived out. See how easy it is? Peter, this this is probably what's going through his head, It's my guess. Peter was thinking, hey, Jesus, I'm just doing what you told us to do. It's not my fault, Jesus. It's your fault. Isn't this what we do? Right? It's been going on since the beginning. God gives Eve to Adam, comes down to cool the day after they ate the fruit. Hey, where are you guys at? Why didn't you eat the fruit? Whoa, God, wait. Um, The woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. It's her fault. And in fact, you, you gave me the woman, so it's your fault. It's not mine. Blame shift, misunderstand. Peter's just enacting out the same story of sin and betrayal that all of us, honestly, all of us live this out every day. This is why the gospel is such good news, because what does Jesus do? Comes and gives himself for us in the midst of our mess. Peter, I think, could have argued um, that he was defending an innocent victim, right? Jesus was innocent, innocent. Jesus, you're innocent, man. I'm just defending the innocent. And, and, and I'm trying to attack the evil enemies that we have in the world, right? Advance in your kingdom through violence and warfare and murder. And some of you may be thinking here in these moments, what about the Old Testament? That's a really good question, right? And God, God did do a lot of very violent things in the Old Testament. We know that if you understand your Bibles much at all. That's one of the greatest arguments of, uh, of atheists and agnostics, right? Is that uh, and God was this God of violence. He murdered and killed people. How, 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 do you, how do you get around that? How do you answer? And listen, pat answers don't work, right? It doesn't work for any of us. I know. I was an unbeliever until 17 years ago. Like Jesus? No way. The Bible? No way. I don't think so. So I think when we think about this big picture of how you respond to evil, to the pain of betrayal, to people who abuse you, you, you can think about that you know, in a personal sense, <coughs> but you can also step back and think about that in an entire worldwide sense. Look, look at the direction of our world around us for a minute. Do I have to say much more than that? The world's been at war for how long? Since the beginning. Right? Since Cain and Abel... Since Cain and Abel had a little fight. Since Cain picked the fight. Since Cain refused to listen to God when God came to him and said, Hey, Cain, sin is crouching around the corner of your heart getting ready to whew, pounce on you. Right? You better master it before it kills you. Cain shuts his ears. He's pissed at Abel because Abel gets God's attention. And that same story has been playing out until now. And the world around us responds in these defensive and attack measures that we are all prone to. Prone to because it's hardwired into us. From the moment that you were born, in fact, I would say from the moment that you were conceived, got time, take two or three minutes. There's an interesting study that I've been doing in a book called uh, um, The Relational Soul. Um, this will seem like a crazy bunny trail. When I mean, you track with me for a minute, and hang with me. I trust the Holy Spirit will bring us back around because I know that I can't do it very well. (laughs) I'll pray that it's going to be beneficial for you guys. Number one, first of all, I highly recommend everyone in this room goes and buys that book and then reads it vigorously. Um, Secondly, because I know that most of you probably won't do that, um, let me give you this little nugget. It's really interesting that our souls, basically the, the emotion center and the experience center of our beings okay our souls are super relational the way that you and i learn how to um, feel emotions is actually um, developed in us relationally here's what i'm saying when you're when you are conceived in the womb the scientific proof in this book, right, that there are doctors that have written this book. Uh, it's, more, uh, it's more psychological and physiological than it is theological, although it's very theological too. I might have just lost half of you, and that's okay. <laughs> when you are inside the womb, the way that your soul as a baby is developed to feel emotions is based upon the emotions that your mother feels. And so if you could go back to your mom and say, what was happening uh, when, when I was in the womb? You, you would find that, wow, well, she responded this way, right? And this is now why I respond the way that I do. Think about the way that you're able to understand how somebody else is feeling. Now, I realize, women, you're looking around, if you have a husband in the room or even just a guy friend, uh, you're probably looking around the room and you're like, him? Understand my emotions? What? Yeah, that's because he's dense, okay? <laughs> because men are dense and, and lazy, and we ignore our wives and their emotions, but the reality is every man feels emotions as well. The other issue is that men don't want to deal with the emotions, and so we learn from a young age to put up barriers, right? Um, so back to the original point. We, we learn how to feel and how to emote based upon um, the relationship that we have with our mother uh, early on and so we get these natural knee-jerk emotional responses from before we were even born a lot of people want to argue for experiences right oh well I was five I got in this one car accident and then this happened and then the guy that came like the paramedic did XYZ and now I'm scarred for life like anybody ever heard heard some yeah right face like yeah I get it okay Yes, those experiences play into how we live and how we respond and how we handle things emotionally. But the reality is is that the way that you handled that experience was actually built and developed in the wound, in the womb. And, um, and, and And then each of us has these emotional connectors that mirror each other. So when someone is angry, when someone's pissed off about something, Inside of you, your emotional responders, your mirrors inside of you, they're just reflecting right off of somebody else's emotional mirrors. This is all just, again, big, kind of heady, sociological, more psychological maybe, physiological. But The theology of all this is that God created every one of us, right? And then all that got broken. It's been broken since then. And so then you and I pick up the same brokenness of our mothers and our fathers and our experiences. And then we wind up justifying the way that we respond. So it's good to slow down a little bit and say, why does my soul respond in this way? Knee-jerk response. Bam! He's dead. He hurt me. Right? Why, is my, why does my soul respond this way? Oh, i got to protect myself. Right? Gotta to toss up a big picture of who I think I am so that you can't see the, the real me, so that you can't ever hurt the real me again. we defend and we attack, and in this passage we see Peter attacking. <clears throat> he could have easily, could have easily justified himself. Ask yourself this question though. In his response, and in this moment, why didn't Jesus look at Peter and be like, attaboy, good job, Pete. Craig, so glad, so glad you had that concealed carry sword, right? Take care of the bad guys. I mean, don't you know, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It's the the non-concealed carry zone. I'm glad you had that, boy. Attaboy, high five. No, that would be... That's not what happened, is it? It's not what happened, is it? Why? Why didn't that happen? Would be a really good question for all of us to ask. Be a really good question. Maybe it's just simply because that's not the way Jesus calls us to respond. Maybe it's just simply not. Maybe the hard truth in this passage. Maybe the hard truth in this passage is to look at the entirety of the Bible and the entirety of the gospel message and say, Jesus, how did you respond? And what did you call me to be and to do then? How am I to respond in the midst of an evil and perverse world that we live in? How am I to live in the midst of that? I mean, if it was okay for me to pull out my concealed carry, right? And plop someone in the head because they were hurting the innocent because they were evil. Then it would be totally justifiable for me to attack people who hurt me. Because I am now the victim, right? I I wasn't doing anything wrong. You did this wrong. I get to attack you with my words, with my actions. This is the world we live in, isn't it? Isn't that what this passage confronts in every one of us hearing it? Jesus didn't respond that way. He didn't. He didn't say, attaboy. His actual words were, knock it off. Stop it. You missed the flipping point. Right? So these are words that you and I both need to hear. And I think it's because I think it's because of this: that when we misunderstand how and why Jesus responds the way He does, when we float past that, then we don't apply that to how we respond, and then there's no change. We just barrel through life, responding the same way we always want to. We ask the questions we want to ask because we've already got the answers in our minds predetermined. We got a script in our pocket written, not only for how we will respond to things when they happen to us, but we have scripts written in our pockets for who we are. This is who I am. This is how I will respond. This is how I've always done it. This is where I'm headed. And boom, I'm gonna ask the questions and I'm just gonna do what I want. And regardless of what Jesus did, and I'm not going to stop. And you know what we all need to do is we need to stop. We need to stop. We need to go, Jesus, what is it that you want to transform in me? What is it that you want to change in me? What is it that you want to redeem in me? What is it that's broken in me that you want to bring healing to? What is that room inside of my soul where I was betrayed so badly and hurt so deeply and wounded so horrendously that I've taken a key and I've locked that door and I've tossed the key as far as I want to? What room is that that you want to walk into so that you can provide some healing? Because ultimately, our attack and defensive posturing, follow me on this, our attack mode and defensive mode, at the end of the day, what you do and what I do is we don't just attack and defend against people here on this earth that were created in the image of God. What we do is we attack and defend ourselves from the God that we mistrust. And the message of the gospel is, Trust in Him. Trust in Him. Third thing that we see in this passage is the root of betrayal. The root of betrayal. Think with me for a minute about the thing beneath the thing. Think about the thing beneath the thing, right? The iceberg under the surface that sinks the ship. The faulty foundation that causes the fracture in the walls of the house. The unseen conditions that cause worldwide catastrophe, maybe? See, Jesus was able to see the thing beneath the thing. He knows the root of the problem. The root of the problem is more than what you and I can see on the surface. The things on the surface that get your attention are not the thing. They're not the problem. The problem is underneath and the other problem is that underneath that thing that's underneath that thing is a thing that we don't want to deal with. Jesus has no problems taking us there. I would argue that when it comes to the pain of betrayal from close friends, what we need most is a supernatural gift from God that gives us the ability to see that root, the root of the problem behind, listen. What we need is God to give us a supernatural understanding and ability to see the thing beneath the thing, the root of the problem behind the face that caused you the pain. You got something in your life that caused you pain, that betrayed you, that, that wounded you, that treated you in ways that you should have never been treated, a husband that left you, a sister that betrayed you, a parent that didn't keep you safe. Whatever that person is to you. Whatever face you see in your mind, if you never get past the face in your mind to the root under the issue, you will continuously live in a place where there is no healing. What I want for all of us, more than anything else, is for us to be healed, right? To walk in the healing that the gospel brings us. So what Jesus does in this passage, he confronts the root of betrayal, not just from the close friend Judas, but also from the crowd around him. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple, and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? (coughs) When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. That last line is money. This is your hour and the power of darkness. On the surface of things, up here on the surface, Judas had betrayed Jesus. Boom, guilty, right? Guilty. On the surface of things... On the surface of things, all these people that had come with Judas were doing shameful things in the dark that they would not do in public, in the light. That, that's, that's on the surface of things. Guilty. True. They would not have done this in broad daylight in the temple because what they were doing was shameful and despicable. So they chose to do it in the dark. But under the root of the surface of all these things is the underlying truth that Jesus uncovers with with just a short statement. These men betrayed Jesus in this way simply because of the spiritually evil darkness that it consumed their souls your soul may not be as consumed as the darkness that it consumed these men in their souls but let me just uh break it to you and i both newsflash newsflash we are all all of us able to fall at any moment to the most grievous of things that we thought we would never do. Just think about the way you used your words in this last week. Man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. What you're really saying is, I didn't believe I could ever say that. Deep down inside of you, you have a much better picture of yourself. And that picture of yourself is what you try to project, and every time you make a mistake is you going back on that script that you keep in your pocket. See, it's the spiritual evil that had consumed these men that had caused them to do this. Identifying the root of betrayal is part, it's just part of what sets you free from the power of that pain of betrayal. Evil had consumed these men. Do you struggle? Do you struggle? Just some questions for you as we wrap this up. Do you struggle with kind of like a constant churning wheel? We call this the wheel of anxiety. Right? You struggle with that? Did you struggle with uh, this constant churning wheel of like blame and guilt that you not only place upon everybody else, but you also place upon yourself and you try to live under that weight? Even though Jesus has come to you and said, Hey, hey, come and follow me because my burden is light. Right? My burden is light and my way is easy. Even though Jesus has said that, do you struggle with that? You find yourself questioning why someone would hurt you this way? Are you trapped under the control, the pain, and the suffering of betrayal from someone else? Listen, the only way that you and I will be enabled to speak honestly and lovingly to the people who have betrayed us is if we come to grips with the root of their sin against us, as well as the root of sin that you and I are both prone to the same sins that you and I see in anybody else that has hurt us and wounded us lies dormant inside of each of us a cursory reading of the book of Romans first seven chapters or so we would give you that picture it's a humiliating picture it doesn't mean that the people that have hurt you it does not mean that they are not guilty guilty simply means that God will release you from their power and their control over you. And I think what you have to do is ask him to reveal to you the evilness and the darkness that powerfully controls them and could be controlling you. Identifying that root of betrayal is just part of what sets you free from the power of that pain and betrayal. And so as I wrap this up, um. um but this is something that I've struggled with for years, and uh, um, betrayal is a tough word uh, for me. And, and uh, um, my list of people goes on and on and on. And um, I remember preaching a little bit about betrayal a few months ago as we looked at the first portion of the, um, the Last Supper, right? Um, and I remember thinking as I was preaching that message, Matt, I'm glad I only had to deal with betrayal for just like 15 minutes of one message. And I, I, I know this is coming. I've read the Bible. Okay, um, I know this is coming. But I didn't, I didn't realize how hard it would be um, to face this topic over the course of this last week, and um, the hours spent in study and thinking and praying through. How does this affect me? How, how does this, how does this passage really um, affect me deeply? Here's the blessing for me is that I, I get to spend roughly 15 hours a week just in study and prayer. Um, and you guys come here and, and you, you hear this for like 45 minutes or well, an hour if, if I'm really running long, right? Um, my encouragement to you is, is to maybe spend some time really researching this passage. Find some online commentaries. Um, but also also as you do, if you do, if you take up that challenge, don't, 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 don't approach this from a, I'm going to get fixed today. because That's probably just not going to happen. By 15 years from now, you, you may still be wrestling with some of the effects of the wounding of being betrayed and how you need to continue to grow in that area, extend forgiveness and mercy and respond in a godly way and continue to identify the root and quit making war against the faces in your mind, um, you may just need to walk this out for a long, long, long time. Um, but as I uh, as I, um, I studied this last week, I, I came across one passage, really kind of like two passages. I'm going to crunch them together, and then one quote that I want to leave you with. Um, that when when I heard them, like marked my soul, I guess, and I was reminded of them. Uh, Hebrews four fourteen through sixteen, as well as five seven through nine, crunched together, um, says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The reality about these passages and the way that I take comfort from this passage um, is this Jesus knows your suffering Jesus knows how you have suffered he suffered as well Jesus knows what it means and what it looks like and what it feels like to to question whether or not God our father has heard our cries of pain Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted to fall asleep or to respond out of hurt Jesus knows the difficulty of obedience in the midst of a world that is going to hell in a handbasket around us, right? Jesus knows these things. You and I are not alone on this journey. The difficulty and the hardship of obedience to the gospel. The difficulty and the hardship of trusting in the gospel. The difficulty and the hardship of being changed by the gospel. We are not alone in those things because Jesus walked this life as well. The pain and the suffering of betrayal makes the gospel a sweet sound to the ears of those who are being saved by it. Quote. A quote from a guy named Annual Wild the right? The Pastor and Wives Conference this last uh, summer. And um, he preached for four days. I mean, what a privilege for me and Christy to be sent to this. He preached for four days, like twice a day. Big black man, passionate about the gospel. He, He would say, listen to me, my beloved. And when he would say that, like when I say it, you think I'm kidding, right? When he would say it, you got this deep sense that he actually really did love every person in the audience. Um, At the very end of his four days of preaching, he dropped this quote on us. What he was preaching about was revival. This big idea was that our hearts are dead, locked away inside of a cage because of the hurt and the pain and the suffering and all the things of this life. And what God wants to do is revive your heart, wake up your heart. Your heart is asleep like the disciples in the garden and he wants to wake you up. And then he drops this quote, when pain and suffering enters into the doorway of your soul, you can look right at that pain and suffering and you can say this, welcome my slave. Welcome, my slave. I'm ready for you to accomplish what you came to do. Suffering and the pain of betrayal, it is a slave. It is a slave in the sovereign hands of our Father in heaven who is in control of every moment, every second, every breath, every hair on your head. He is in control. Nothing changes that Pain, suffering, betrayal, slave in the hands of our Master, our Father in Heaven. Had a purpose in Jesus' life. That purpose was the salvation of all who would come to trust in Him. And the reality is that in many ways, every one of us hearing this message has also been the betrayer to Christ. That's the reality. Every one of us has done that one way or the other and will again most likely yet Jesus still goes to the cross so those of us who were betrayers could have the opportunity to become sons and daughters of our father in heaven this is grace this is the picture of love this is the picture of mercy that every one of us deep within our souls is crying out for in reality pain and the suffering and the sin of betrayal It's been defeated. It's been defeated at the cross of Christ so that we who have been broken by it and are broken in it could be made whole and complete in Christ Jesus. Let that be an encouragement to you as we close. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this passage, this message, this word. We thank you for... Not just the example of Jesus at the cross, but also His words at the cross, His actions at the cross, and His words and His actions then also in in the garden. Lord, we just pray that You would um, draw us into a sweet time um, just closing today as we worship together, as we partake in communion together. But I pray that you would paint a picture on our minds, our hearts, and our souls of the the truth of the cross and the healing that is available to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close, we'll close with communion and worship. Um, The way that we do communion here is there will be two people at the front to serve you. Um, You can just come forward as you um, feel ready after we get the elements ready. We would like to say this, the communion is something that's for believers. You don't have to be a member of our church. So you don't have to sign on the dotted line and get jumped into the biker game with us um, to take communion. Uh, But you have to be a part of the family of God. So you have to have come to that place where you have trusted in Christ, right? And His work at the cross. And and that moment could have been now. Could could have been today. um, I think that you'll know that. I believe, I believe Jesus died at the cross. I don't have all my other questions answered, but I believe that. I believe He died for me. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that He needs to change me, and I can't do it on my own. And so I'm trusting His work there to do that. Um, when that moment happens for you, then then you want to partake in communion because the the, the the blood is represented in the juice in the cup. and And the bread is representative of his broken body. And it's a reminder to us of the message of the gospel and the hope that we have in the message of the gospel. And so so I'd like to invite you guys to come and take communion with us, as well as close and worship with us. There'll be somebody, um, two of us near the front to serve, and then we're here to pray with you as well. Uh, And then one of us will close up in prayer, and we'll get the heck out of here. So thanks for being here. Love you guys. Thanks for letting me preach. Let's stand and worship. listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.